Hello, and welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. Yeah, and this is a Sandman week. We are wrapping up Brief Lives. No, I mean, look, not, <laughs> not ours. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Let's see how this podcast goes. Do you want to recap a little bit what's happened in Brief Lives? No, exactly the opposite. I want you to recap a little bit what has happened in Brief Lives. Delirium, one of the Endless, got the idea, maybe from their sister brother, Desire, to go look for the missing Endless sibling, Destruction. She got Dream to go with her. He was a little bit reluctant, but he decided to go along, albeit mostly just to see if he could run into his human ex-girlfriend that he just broke up with. Yeah, or be distracted from his human ex-girlfriend that he just broke up with. Right, so he went along and was kind of acerbic about the whole thing, but then it turned out that all of the people that they found, all of Destruction's old friends were being blown up or otherwise killed, and he decided to end the journey for that reason, which caused Delirium to be very depressed, but he went to her realm and apologized for being mean and agreed to finish the journey with her. Because death made him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, oh, and that's it. Oh, that's... and I guess we have seen Destruction. He's hanging out in a, in a pretty nice house and making art. Yeah. With his talking dog, Barnabas. Yeah, and that is where we find him at the beginning of issue 7. Or, I mean, chapter 7. It's issue 47. But first, let's talk about this cover. So, Sandman number 47 is written by Neil Gaiman. Pencils by Jill Thompson. Inks by Vince Locke and Dick Giordano. Colors by Daniel Vazo. And the cover by Dave McKeon. And the next two issues that we're going to cover in this episode are the same crew, minus Dick Giordano. Right. No Dick Giordano. No Dick in those issues. Well, Morpheus is still in them. hey <laughs> So, on the cover here we have... At the top, there's a heart. The organ, not the symbol. And it is adorned with a number of titles. Below that, there's a Picasso-esque Morpheus. Footnote, I'm not really an art studies major. It's very possible that this Morpheus looks more like somebody else's work. I'm saying Picasso. He's holding up a cube, which has a drawing of a city inside. And the backdrop behind these images is a map. Yeah, there's also an eye and maybe a paramecium? Some kind of a creature, yeah. Out of all the titles, the one I chose was Where All Mazes Meet. Not a bad choice. So as you mentioned, we open on Destruction, returning home to his little villa here. He's been shopping for food. Barnabas the dog is simultaneously contemptuous and really excited about the food. Dogs, man. Right. Contemptuous talking pet dogs. There's no pleasing them. And we, we get the title, one of the titles is Cooking Considered as One of the Fine Arts. And that is his aim here. Right. Barnabas asks what he bought food for. I we know from all the way back in Sandman number one that Endless don't need to eat, although they do get hungry if they don't. Oh, yeah, he ate that fried chicken. Yeah, he was really into that fried chicken after he had been imprisoned for 70 years. Yeah, who wouldn't be? Yeah, so Destruction is cooking as one of the fine arts. Barnabas wonders if he's going to get some of that food and starts mocking a sculpture that Destruction had made. Yeah, he's sort of mocking Destruction's whole artistic impulse. He says... I have no desire to ruin a perfectly good piece of marble. Dogs have more sense. We don't make fools of ourselves like you do. Yeah, we actually see the sculpture in the next panel. It's of a woman, and it looks pretty bad. Yeah, at least it's very abstract. Destruction gives Barnabas a piece of chocolate, which I guess that's probably okay, because he's not really entirely a dog, and he's definitely at least somewhat immortal. You know what this reminds me of? 
It's actually not that good of an episode, but in the first West Wing episode where Josh meets Amy Gardner. Okay. And she has balloon animals around her office. Okay. And he's like, are they abstract? And she's like, I'm a beginner. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I thought this was a fun bit because Barnabas is like, hey, that was fun. Can we do it again? Please? Come on, please. It's like he's able to talk, but he's still a dog. Right. Oh, it's kind of like Brian on Family Guy. Right, yeah, before that. <laughs> Do you or, want the ball? Yes, I would like it, please. <laughs> <laughs> or kind of the same joke as uh, Doug the dog from Up. It's like he can talk, but he's still a dog. Right. Yeah. And of course, what a dog would say is, that game was fun, let's play it again. <laughs> right. Destruction kicks him out of the kitchen. A culinary artist needs genius, inspiration, and a dog-free kitchen. So you'll settle for one out of three, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Barnabas leaves laughing. Now we cut to Dream and Delirium. They are nowhere. It's cold nowhere, so they decide to go somewhere. It's this wordplay again that we saw back when they were journeying together for the first time. One of our titles is My Envelope Isn't Good Anymore, and that is what Delirium says. Right, referring to the fact that she had made a list of Destruction's old friends, but they've all either died or disappeared, so the list is now useless. Dream, I wish you'd tell me what was going on. Don't treat me like I don't matter. You mustn't do that anymore. Very well. This is a family matter. We shall take it to the family. All of them? You're going to call a meeting? No. Then who? Desire said no, and Despair told me, no, I won't help you. She said it. Our elder brother. So, yeah, he's being knowing and enigmatic about the fact that he has a plan, and she basically reminds him that he promised not to be a dick anymore, and so he starts to tell her the plan. They're going to go see Destiny. And that involves finding a labyrinth. Right, so Delirium basically just teleports them to the state fair. I guess they can teleport anywhere in the waking world, but other planes are a little more difficult. Hmm, okay. As they walk through the state fair, we get the narration, no one knows that they are even there at all. So once again, the Endless are background, they're part of the fabric of the universe, they're imperceptible unless they don't want to be. Yeah, now, they find the uh, craze maze, and as they start walking through this rickety old state fair maze it kind of transforms into a different maze yeah wooden walls turn to brick and then to hedge and then to forest basically all labyrinths are one we learn and they walk to where all mazes meet which is another title right in the center of all the mazes they all connect to each other and they all connect to destiny's realm yeah, as they arrive in Destiny's realm, Dream is uncomfortable, but then we are told that Endless are always uncomfortable in each other's realms, except for Death, who can go anywhere. I see. And as they walk through the maze in Destiny's garden, they see their own pasts and futures. They see Delight here, with silvery metal skin and wild red hair. Is that me? Yes, it is you. You a very long time ago. I remember that day. Dancing men came to me from a far world, bringing tribute of birds and flowers and fine gems. They were grateful for... for what? Happiness, perhaps? Hmm, something like that. So, Destiny shows up and notes that they have arrived. Yes, you two arrive here now. It is your birthday. <laughs> it is good to know that we were expected, my brother. I take it you also know why we are here. Indeed. That was kind of the same dream voice, but, you know, if they're both going to be immortal guys with really stoic demeanors, that's just a risk that they take. <laughs> I try to do Destiny as 10% more bookish. Okay. Because he has a 
they all look. I think he probably has like a creaky old guy voice, but it's just hard for me to do that. Well, will you assist us? Will you offer us advice? Certainly. Really? Oh, wow. But it turns out the advice is... Forget this foolishness. Drop it. Go home. Our brother told us that he was leaving us. He advised us to leave him be. Until now, you have been content to respect his wishes. Do likewise in the time to come. I cannot do that, my brother. As well you know. I know. And I am sorry. Right, so that makes it sound like this isn't going to end so well for Dream. Yeah, also, I think that's the first of two times in this issue that we get the line, I know and I am sorry. Hmm. So Destiny can't tell them where to find destruction, and then he kind of changes the subject here. Or I guess Morpheus asks him if there's anything else he can tell, which is why he changes the subject. She does not love you, and truly she never did. She will not change her mind, no matter how long nor how deeply you wish that this were the case. You will see her but one more time, long after all this is over, and the outcome of that meeting will not be satisfactory for either of you. I did not wish to be told that. You asked me to tell you what you needed to know, not what you wished to hear. So Destiny reminds them of something that they've kept hearing over the last couple issues. What they need is an oracle. Specifically the one that occurred to Dream during his meeting with Bast, although he didn't say anything. And this is where we get the big reveal that we've been dancing around. An oracle can't tell them about the Endless Family, unless he is of the family. Yeah, and we'll find out who that is in a couple of pages. Or did you already say? I haven't said. Good. Well, it's someone that we've seen and wondered what he was doing in this story. Yes. We get a, a nice bit here about how Dream is the prince of all those symbols and shapes that mean other than what they seem, of metaphor and illusion. Destiny's dominion is that which is. Actions and consequences and paths. And he says, I can neither live your life for you nor shoulder your responsibilities, which I think is another line that comes back. Yeah, well, it's certainly reminiscent of dialogue that we've heard before anyway. So Delirium has wandered off to sit on the plinth of her own statue in the garden, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, and then she comes back asking what Destiny told Dream. He's sort of fallen to his knees in horror at the information that he's been given. Yeah, he's crying. And she's basically upset with Destiny for having told him this information, either because it's made him upset or because it's put him on a bad path. And she becomes unusually serious and collected here. Her... She's also hovering above the ground. Yeah, her speech bubbles are all in one color, different colors each time, but one color. And her, and her lettering is now consistent in size and capitalization as she confronts Destiny here. There are things not in your book. There are paths outside this garden. You would do well to remember that. Coins have two sides. Destruction told us that when he told us he was leaving. But I knew it already. You did too. Now she goes to Dream, who's... He's sort of curled up on the floor. Please get up. I don't know how much longer I can be like this. It hurts very muchly. Right. Both of her eyes are the same color. She's just much more... I think the word Destiny used was collected. But, yeah, she's being very rational, and it hurts her to be like that. Yeah, she can, by an act of will, become sane temporarily. And she felt the need to do so, to yell at Destiny. And sort of to get Morpheus back on the path as well. If you're going to fall apart, then one of us has to keep this thing going. So uh, Morpheus regains his composure, and they leave to seek an oracle. After they leave, a gust of wind hits Destiny's book and flips the pages to a chapter from 300 years ago. A family meeting when Destruction announced he was leaving. Destruction tells them he is leaving. 
that they are not to follow him, that they must no longer consider him one of them. Each sibling reacts in its fashion. Destiny watches Destiny, with perhaps some small approval, appear calm and unsurprised. Death says nothing. Dream blusters. Is that really Dream's normal way as to bluster? Desire smirks, as if Desire cherishes elegant secrets behind its tawny eyes. Despair pleads with him to reconsider, and Delirium? Delirium, like death, says nothing. She sips the wine of destiny and makes a sudden face, as if it has unexpectedly become quite bitter. But the wine of destiny is very fine. One of the titles we are given as Life as a Glass of Bitter Wine. Mm. Then other pages of Destiny's book flap in the wind, and we see a number of scenes. Dream, dressed for war and exhausted, returning, he is dragged off course. Is that right before he's imprisoned? Right. And we also have Death spends her mortal day walking under the hot sun with a young ox drover, who tells the little peasant girl his grand schemes and plans. Is this the first reference we get to Death's mortal day? It might be. Yeah, it has come out at some point, and I think... We see this in other sources, in expanded universe materials on death, that she spends a day mortal. Is it every year? Maybe every century or something. And there's also a scene we see here, perhaps in the past, perhaps in the future, of a confrontation between the Corinthian and Morpheus, but Morpheus is an all-white version of Morpheus instead of all-black, and it looks like the throne room is in ruins. Yeah, and there's blood all over the throne, which the Corinthian is standing behind. Wonder where that story's going. Destiny stops the fluttering pages and turns back to the page for now. It was late afternoon when they reached the island. So, this oracle, is this someone you know? Yes. Is it someone I know, too? Yes. Oh. Is it somebody very old? No. Have you ever spent days and days making up flavors of ice cream that no one's ever eaten before? Like chicken and telephone ice cream? No. Why don't you want to see this person? Because I gave my word I would not. Who did you give your word to? To myself. And it's at this point that they are stopped by one of Orpheus's guardians. He tells them they better stay where they are or he's going to shoot this tree. He tells them... <laughs> Stay where you are, the tree gets it. You can't kill a vegetable by shooting it in the head. So this is Chris's son. This is the one who needed a beating for being too easy to spot when he was guarding. And indeed, they did not notice him until this panel. Okay, now he's got the gun pointed at them. Yeah, he was just kind of bringing it around the tree at the time. It was a slice of time, you see, the panel was. He asks them how they got here, and they say that they walked, although Delirium adds, But I'm a really good driver. <laughs> And then he says, one false move and I will shoot you. Delirium asks, what's a false move? Is it very different from a real one? Anyway, he calls for reinforcements and Andros and Chris show up. Green mouse ice cream was the worst. I didn't like that at all. Delirium and Dream continue to explain badly how they got here. We walked the path. Yeah, Delirium describes their last several stops in the journey. And notably she says, and it was one path. Which calls back to a description of Destiny's Garden from earlier in the story, that the maze always appears to be one path in retrospect. Mm. Morpheus says he's here to see his son. They ask if he is Apollo. Right, Orpheus is supposed to be the son of Apollo, although Dream has noted that he and Apollo are friends, but not the same guy. I am your charge's father. Take me to him. 
There's also a mention here that each of them is hearing dreams speak in their own native language. Our lord talked to me this morning. He warned me that today might prove an unusual day, says Andros. He did not say how unusual. So, Dream doesn't want to go into the temple, but he does. They spend a whole page on Dream doesn't want to go in, but he does. I have no desire to do this, my sister. I know. I'm sorry. That's the second I know and I'm sorry. And we don't see what's going on in the temple. We do not see the conversation between Morpheus and Orpheus. Valyrium waits outside, eating cherries by Joanna Constantine's grave. That's another full page. And Dream comes out. We have spoken. It is done. One of the titles is Cherries Are Counted. She's playing a game as she counts the cherries, going through various occupations. The number of cherries, I guess, when she runs out is the job that she ends up with. She ends up with Kangaroo. Yeah, she's doing the same rhyme from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yeah. So, Delirium asks some questions about how the meeting went. Yes, the Oracle told Dream where to find their brother. Yes, it cost him dearly, but not yet. Dream has promised his son a boon. Is it a long way to where our brother is? No, not far. As they pass by, Dream conjures up and throws a white rose onto Joanna Constantine's grave. And he mentions that they've concluded the penultimate step in their journey. Delirium adds, And nobody else got killed or exploded or anything. Well... It's not going to be quite that easy. So Chris takes them to a rowboat, and he rows them across to the other island, just across a little narrow channel. Yeah, this little journey takes two pages, and we can see that Dream looks very severe, and Delirium looks very worried about Dream. Yeah, and it turns out that destruction was on the island across from Orpheus the whole time. Yeah, the one where Andros was watching the lights way back in the first issue of the story. The other house on the other island. So, they walk up this beautiful, verdant cliff. They run into destruction, and Morpheus offers Barnabas his old lightsaber. That is not a thing that happens. He doesn't just hold out the lightsaber? He sure doesn't. For two years? No. God, that movie sucks. I live for that expression of, I get the joke, I'm just furious that you made it. <laughs> yeah, like, I shouldn't even really be mad, because you're talking about a scene from, um... Force uh, Awakens. From Force Awakens, which is good. Last Jedi is the one that sucks. Yeah, so they run into the dog first. Delirium plays with the dog. What's your name, then? His name's Barnabas. Well, come up here, then, you two, where I can see you properly. He grips Delirium by the shoulders and greets her warmly. Ah, uh, let me look at you, lass. Pretty as ever you were, by my troth, and yes, I do believe you've grown. Maybe. And you, my brother, you also seem different. Perhaps you, too, have grown. It is not likely. No? Stranger things have happened. That is a reference, perhaps, to the Netflix hit show Stranger Things. It is not likely. But I do think this is a cool moment, as Destruction calls out that... Dream may have changed somewhat, you know, as a person. And Dream's kind of, no, that doesn't happen. No, but he totally has. Yeah, exactly. So, he invites them inside. He was expecting them a little bit earlier. He says the Dolmaids may be a trifle cool. I'm not sure that's how you pronounce that word. It means stuffed grape leaves. Oh, cool. Okay. So, please, take a seat. I've made dinner. Right. He knew they were coming. Yeah, and we know how he knew. He had a scrying pool in his gallery that told him, Enemies were coming, or danger was coming anyway. All right. 
This next issue is Sandman number 48, Brief Lives, Chapter 8, Journey's End. Yeah, on this cover, although all the titles appear, as in the previous issues in the story, only Journey's End is right side up and unjumbled. Yeah, but we get them all on the title page anyway, so that we can see the rest of them if we want to. At the top of the cover, we have a rainbow or sort of a hemisphere of rainbow color. Below that, there's a pile of forks which are splashed in paint, cooking considered as one of the fine arts. And there's a woman curled up in the fetal position with rainbow hair. Yeah, I thought the pile of forks, the painting of a pile of forks, I thought was perhaps a reference to the 2003 film The Room. Why? (laughs) Oh, because he has framed pictures of silverware for some reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it's, it's impossible. Can't be that. So this entire issue is a conversation, and it's all good conversation, full of interesting mythological implications and great character moments. We are going to attempt not to read the entire thing out loud. Although, you know, there have been worse ideas for a podcast. Yeah, right. Destruction tells Dream and Delirium to help themselves. They stare at him, not touching the food. It's here to be eaten. Now, one thing I wondered is his artistic endeavors keep ending up being failures. Yeah. So I wonder if, like, all this food actually tastes horrible. I don't know. And we never really... I kept waiting for that shoe to drop, and we never really find out. Yeah. It does look delicious. Like, a lot of the time in visual arts, you see food that's just kind of a mess of food-like color. And this is kind of amazing food. Yeah, it looks very good. Maybe he found his calling. Destruction makes a joke about calling Dream and Delirium here tonight. He didn't really call them, but he did expect them, hence all the food. You created all this? Not the raw ingredients. I purchased them down at the village, but I turned them into the meal on the table. Dream asks him to send Barnabas away so they can talk family business. Your dog is here. (laughs) He doesn't say that. Oh, okay. (laughs) You idiot. You forgot your dog. (laughs) Delirium, though, likes Barnabas and wants him to stay. You mustn't make the doggy go away, Dream. And we get a panel of him looking very cross. Dream face palms. Yeah. Very well. If it is silent, then it may stay. And Barnabas loses the ability of speech at that moment. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. This little silence bubble coming out of Barnabas as he's suddenly unable to speak or to repeat anything he says. When Dream says that he can't repeat what he hears, we understand that that's not an order so much as a natural law. So... Destruction here offers Dream some salad. Isn't salad what he had at the first dinner? Yeah, that's correct. So, yeah, he knows his brother's tastes. On the next page, Delirium kind of gives a synopsis of everything that's happened so far. Synopsis. (laughs) Did she do a synopsis rhyme first? No, I guess not. Goddamn waste of time. Although there is kind of a rhyme here in the sense that we had an earlier dinner scene. And now we're having another dinner scene. That's right. That's right. And and both times the dinner is kind of this weird formality, right? Yeah, like, that's true. Dream made a big deal of having dinner so that he was having delirium over for dinner. And even though he doesn't need to eat. And it was kind of a distraction from what she wanted to talk about. Right. And now here again, destruction is going to a lot of trouble to arrange a dinner, even though they don't need to have a dinner. And indeed, Dream and delirium are ignoring the dinner. Right. A couple of quick notes on Delirium's recap here. She says, I like airplanes. I like anywhere that isn't a proper place. I like in-betweens. Yeah, but she hated being nowhere. 
at yeah. the beginning of the last issue. So I thought that was a little incongruent. Yeah, well, it kind of indicates that, like, the journey itself has value, I guess. Ah. Not so much the place nowhere, but the state of being traveling somewhere. Mm, fair enough. She mentions the dancing lady here, but does not mention that she has died. Yeah, and I wondered if maybe she didn't know. <laughs> they don't know, actually. They walked out of the bar before it exploded. She also says, then I did driving, and I was really good. <laughs> As she's describing being mad at Dream, her hair goes all short, just like it did a couple of issues ago when that actually happened. And before this, it has been a combination of blonde, red, and green, but as it grows back out now, it's pure red. Then Dream went all spoggly, and I had to put me all... I... I had to... I had to be... It hurt. And as she says this, her eyes are both the same color. And Dream looks sad as she remembers how she had to do that for him. As she says, we have been looking for you for some small time now. Please eat something. I spent most of the day cooking for you both, after all. Destruction asks, how are the family? And Dream starts off with, little has changed. Yeah, he mentions that he's seen all of them recently, which is true. And probably kind of an uncommon thing. Yeah, that's right. They go years without meeting each other pretty normally. But he's seen... Has he seen all of them since the beginning of his story? Well, they all got together at the beginning of Season of Mists. Yeah, that's right. So no more than two years ago he's seen all of them. Right. They talk for a bit about Despair's assumption of the role. The only time an Endless has died and been replaced. Yeah, right. And we didn't know that before. So this is another little hint that we're getting for the first time. And this destruction says is why he quit the job instead of dying. If he died, another aspect would just take his place. He didn't want to stick someone with that. He'd be putting someone else through the same mess. You abandoned your responsibilities. So you said, 300 years ago. They're all just like they were, the family. Not changed, but it's not the same. Not without you. I'm sorry. It used to be better. You used to make everything nice. I made my decision. I can live with it. So Destruction drops another title here, more or less apropos of nothing, asking if they want brains, a heart, a ride in a balloon. That is also a reference to the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. You've found me. Now what? Delirium says now that they've found him, he'll come back, right? And everything will be all right, and the family will treat each other like family again, right? He doesn't answer that, but he does ask Dream why he came. I came because I wished to. Initially, perhaps, because our sister desired company on the road. I had other reasons. Later, it became a matter of honor. There was a woman named Ruby who died because we looked for you. She knew nothing of our quest. It was not just that she should die. So at that, Destruction says that Dream has changed. 300 years ago, a mortal death wouldn't have motivated him like that. I doubt I have changed that much. I suppose I had vaguely hoped that you had changed, my brother. That you'd noticed there were other people in the world. Again, Dream says, don't tell me how to do my job. And what of your realm? I'm sure it's still there. The only difference is that no one's running it anymore. As he describes this, he makes a little man out of food and then knocks it down. They can make their own destruction. It's not my responsibility. And it's not my fault. They ask where he's been all this time. He hasn't been on the island for 300 years, of course. He's been traveling as a mortal. Well, I should say disguised as a mortal. I don't think he's been, you know, killable. Right. They ask how he knew they were coming. He says he set up certain defense mechanisms before he left. That's what killed Bernie and Ruby. Yeah, automatic functions. Yeah, and he couldn't shut them off once the search began without actually resuming the role of destruction. He also tells them there's a scrying pool out back. It tells me if anyone's looking for me. 
Dream points out that some of the people killed were his friends. One of them was once my lover. Oh, but you didn't know about her end, did you? That's so, Ishtar. So Destruction does know about what happened to Ishtar. So this is one of my favorite lines for some reason. He offers them, Greek coffee. Don't drink the sludge at the bottom of the cup. Don't drink the cup either. Just the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gotta tell Delirium these things. He asks how they found him. They talk to Orpheus. Destruction says he liked Orpheus, thought about visiting him, but no, he's still family. But he's glad at least that this quest got Morpheus to talk to his son. The last time I saw him, he reminded me of you. A romantic fool, self-pitying, but with a certain amount of personal charm. I kind of note here how Destruction is either unaware of or unconcerned with his massive impact on Orpheus' life, having given him the idea to go behind death in search of Eurydice in the first place. Again, we get this theme that kind of the effect of the Endless is massive, even if unintended. It was what he wanted. He was a child. He did not know what he wanted. It is something he has since had time to regret. Note that Morpheus here says that Orpheus regrets what happened to Orpheus. He doesn't actually say that he regrets what happened to Orpheus. But maybe, maybe he does. We're thinking about it. Now here we get the conversation. We've sort of been tiptoeing around this. The metaphor of the two-sided coin. Right. Dream asks Destruction how he could leave. Because there's no such thing as a one-sided coin. Because there are two sides to every sky. Destruction did not cease with my abandonment of my realm. No more than people would cease to dream should you abandon yours. Not but, actually a hypothetical. Yeah, that's right. A few people were affected, but most people continued to dream. Right. Perhaps it's more uncontrolled, wilder. Perhaps not. But it's no longer anyone's responsibility. As he continues to explain this, he invites them into the garden. And Delirium is here seen trying the coffee, the only time either Dream or Delirium has had any food, and she makes a yucky face. Dream also takes a sip of the coffee. Hmm, okay. They step out into the garden, and we have an amazing two-page spread of the starry sky. I like the stars. It's the illusion of permanence, I think. I mean, they're always flaring up and caving in and going out, but from here, I can pretend. I can pretend that things last. I can pretend that lives last longer than moments. Gods come and gods go. Mortals flicker and flash and fade. Worlds don't last, and stars and galaxies are transient, fleeting things that twinkle like fireflies and vanish into cold and dust. But I can pretend. He asks if either of them ever just sit and think on all the places they've been and all the lives they've touched. Dream changes the subject back, though, to why he left. Delirium says, He told you already, Dream, because there's no such thing as a one-sided coin. Destruction recalls a conversation he had with Death once, when he was feeling small and insignificant. Which is pretty funny, because he's, you know, one-seventh of the base functions of the universe. Yeah, and also because he's a big, gigantic man. Yeah. She said, Everyone can know everything Destiny knows. And more than that. She said we all not only could know everything, we do. We just tell ourselves we don't, to make it all bearable. It sounds unlikely. So this ties into Delirium, who, as we've talked about, she's not sane and she knows things that Destiny doesn't know. There are things that you can't know and function. I want to point out, in their discussion of the constellations, they're completely different constellations than the ones we know. <laughs> right. The Diamond Girl, the Wreath of Bright Stars, the Crucible. There's an interesting idea here of these almighty beings playing at being mortals. It's like... It occurred to me that their limits and their sentience are kind of the same thing. If they were to acknowledge their omnipresence, then they wouldn't be beings, just functions. Yeah, and that's kind of what he says. 
They don't have responsibilities. The endless are merely patterns. The endless are ideas. The endless are wave functions. The endless are repeating motifs. Even our existences are brief and bounded. None of us will last longer than this version of the universe. Except our sister. So we suppose. That's, I assume, death who has to actually close up the universe at the end. Right. Delirium asks him if he's going to return. He apologizes to her, but he says, of course not. He also mentions here that the Endless have no right to play with human lives, to order their dreams and desires, which is a callback to the doll's house when Dream said something similar to desire. Right. He starts talking about the two-sided coin again. Destruction is needed. Nothing new can exist without destroying the old. So destruction kind of defines creation. Our sister defines life, just as despair defines hope, or desire defines hatred, or as destiny defines freedom. And what do I define by this theory of yours? Reality, perhaps? Oh, he also says here, one cannot begin a new dream without abandoning the last. Delirium has apparently been considering his words here, as she says she couldn't leave her realm. It has all her things in it. It's where she keeps her stuff. Destruction says they've forced him to leave his comfortable life, to change, in effect, but at least they had this time together. He tells Delirium she was always his favorite, and he hopes her next change will be easier on her. He tells Dream there's no one like him, and he's changed more than he suspects. Once you are done here, then where will you go? There were matters left unfinished with my son. Dream, you left matters unfinished with your son some thousands of years ago. They head into the gallery, which Destruction realizes he's only kept out of habit or sentiment, and he gives Dream some advice. Remember what I did. Remember that I left. Remember how hard it was for me to leave, and that it was not your fault. I am not in the habit of forgetting things. Dream, my brother, you forget nothing you have interest in. You forget instantly those things you do not care to know. He goes around, vaporizing each of his sigils. He decided not to have a gallery anymore. He needs the sword, which is his sigil, and the scrying pool, and he packs them up in a hobo's sack, but the rest will just cease to exist. He gave Dream some advice, so he asks, what can he give Delirium? Maybe you could come and stay in my realm. You can live there with me, and you can make me laugh, and I'll do you little dances, and... And you won't, will you? No. But instead, he gives her Barnabas, so she'll have some company. I can't look after a doggy. You misheard him. I get to look after you. Yeah, as a dog, he apparently can't survive where destruction's headed anyway. So now he's Delirium's dog. Well, she shouldn't be allowed out off a leash, but I'll do what I can. He borrows a handkerchief from Dream, which Dream's handkerchief is black, of course. He turns it into a polka-dotted one. And he wraps up his stuff in his sack. If you see Ishtar again, give her my love, he says. Now, she had mentioned right before she did her final dance that when gods disappear, they head back into the Dreaming. So even though she's dead, he has reason to believe that Dream will see her again. I'll miss you, says Barnabas. Ah, yes, you'll miss the poetry readings, the paintings, the late-night flamenco guitar recitals. That's right, go on, try to make me feel better. Yeah, he'll miss him, but he won't miss his art. Yeah. They step out of the house once again. Dream asks where destruction is going. Oh, out there somewhere. Up, out. And then he just kind of walks off into the sky, like climbing a flight of stairs. Yeah, turns and steps up into the sky, and finally flashes like a star as he vanishes. Yeah, he leaves with a little twinkle, like in a cartoon or something, but <laughs> here it kind of works. So, he's really gone. He left 300 years ago. 
I thought he'd come back to us. I know. So, Delirium asks, What's next for Dream? I need to return to the temple. Why? I have to kill my son. Oh man, that is the deal he made. So, that brings us to Sandman number 49. Like the last one, there's sort of a more central title to this one. Answered Prayers. Oh, I was going to say Brief Lives. Yeah, you're right. But Answered Prayers is the one that I picked. At the top of the cover, there is a haunted-looking face, which I'm guessing is Morpheus, because it kind of looks like it has stars for eyes. And at the bottom, there's a kind of a smiling devil mask. Yeah, there's the devil. There's a rose. The devil built a rose. From Orpheus' point of view, looking out the window of the temple, he has hardly slept this night. Yeah, he's looking at the house across the channel. Yeah, just in case we missed that the house across the channel is Destruction's house. He dozes briefly and has a dream of his wife with his grandchildren. Which, of course, were never born. Yeah. Uh, across the bay, figures move into the garden, and then a shooting star blasts up into the sky. That's Destruction taking off. Now he hears voices outside his temple. It's Delirium and Dream. Delirium wants to come in and say goodbye. Very well. But the dog remains outside. Delirium pops into his field of vision with her nipples all out and everything and does this weird little wave. And uh, I actually am doing the wave. You guys can't see it. That's <laughs> what's happening yep. there. And then she leaves and Morpheus comes in and apologizes for the intrusion. She says, you look um, like you used to, only different. <laughs> right. Yeah, Morpheus comes in, they talk briefly about destruction. Morpheus sort of tacitly admits here what he hadn't during the conversation with destruction, that he was actually hoping to bring him back to the fold, but failed in that goal. Morpheus brings up his mother, Calliope. Father, mother came to me last year. She said that she had been imprisoned. She had. And that you had freed her. Yes. You have changed since the old days. I doubt it. And Calliope said that he had changed and he didn't believe it when he freed her. Yeah, and Destruction said the same thing last issue, and he didn't believe it then either. Yeah, so he's in pretty big denial over having changed somewhat, but he is a fairly different guy from the one who went into that crystal cell 70 years ago. I am so scared. It's strange. For many thousand years I have prayed for death. I have prayed to all the gods for peace and relief, and I have prayed for an ending. He recalls Morpheus' last words to him. He recalls accurately Morpheus' last words from the Sandman special. Your life is your own, your death likewise, always and forever your own. Farewell, we shall not meet again. I believe I said something like that, yes. Those were your exact words. I have had plenty of time to think on them. I should have died long ago. Perhaps. Father? Yes? I wish that things had been otherwise. Father, I am ready. So Dream picks up Orpheus's head, uh, which is all, of course, that's left. He kisses him on the forehead, and then he strikes him somehow, and we see the symbol of death. Yeah, we see this in silhouette as he seems to drive his hand into Orpheus's skull. And then a panel containing the Ankh of Death, and then Orpheus is dead, and his father's hand is bloody, though we see no visible wound. Right. Morpheus closes his son's eyes and stands in the arch alone. It's actually a great panel. He's leaning against the arch here, like, just kind of overcome with sadness. Morpheus walks through the garden, blood drips from his hand, and red flowers spring up where it lands. 
You did it, didn't you? Morpheus reiterates his own words from so long ago. It was what he wanted. His life and death were always his own. If I could have lived his life for him, my sister, what then? I mentioned earlier that I can't live your life for you would come back, and there it is. Yeah. I told him many things when he was young, if he had listened, but he did not listen. You killed him? No. He died long ago, when the Sisters of the Frenzy tore his body to shreds and threw his head into the Hebrews. He died before that, on the night of his wedding, perhaps, or when destruction sent him to see our sister, or in the underworld. This is despair. She asks about destruction. Delirium says she's not worried about him anymore, although now she's worried about Dream. You need not worry for me. Our journey is over. All debts are paid. Good day to you also, sister. Our brother. Did he mention me? He spoke fondly of you, sister. Oh, good. He wasn't wearing his beard anymore, either. I liked the beard. Morpheus bows. My sisters, Messiah Barnabas, I will take my leave of you all now. Delirium thanks Dream for going on this journey with her, and it looks like she might be about to hug him, but before she can, he's just gone. Yeah, she also admits that she couldn't have done it on her own. She kept saying earlier that she could if she wanted to. Yeah, that's right. Despair notes that the priests are soon going to see what's become of their charge. It sounds like she's kind of interested in the priests finding out that they don't have a job anymore. Yeah, they're going to be despairing. She kind of wishes that she had been the one to accompany Delirium on this journey, but Delirium reminds her that when asked, she just said, So? Delirium's maybe being a little bit snarky here. She grabs Barnabas and disappears to her realm. Come on, doggy. We're going to my place. It's very interesting. You'll like it, unless maybe you don't. Before despair disappears, she plucks two little red flowers from the trail that Morpheus has left. And when she enters the realm of despair, the world behind mirrors, she gives that flower to the person waiting there. It's desire. So, the child is dead. Yes. And destruction has gone for good? Yes. And dream? I don't know. It could have been worse. They could have dragged our sister and destiny into the mess. It's strange, my twin. I thought I'd be delighted to see this day. He's humiliated me. He's been rude and boorish. He's stuffy and stupid and thinks he knows everything. And there's just something about him that gets on my nerves. But I can't help feeling sorry for him. Despair goes on. You know, I swore an oath once. I swore I would make him spill family blood. And now he has. I should be triumphant. It was not of your doing. True, but it was what I wanted. So, you're happy? No, I'm scared. So am I. So, yeah, Despair's long-term plan has come to pass that Morpheus has spilled family blood, and we don't know what the consequences are yet. Yeah. But he will certainly face them. Yeah, only that now, Desire and Despair are afraid of what they've unleashed. There's an interesting parallel here, too. We talked before with regard to Delirium about how the passage of time spoils delight. When she became aware of the passage of time, she became Delirium. And indeed, Desire's plan here, in the time it has taken to come to pass, its delight is spoiled. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting point. And again, we touch on the fact that Desire can want, but can't really find fulfillment. And there's a parallel, too, to Orpheus. Desire, like Orpheus, is scared now that it stands to get exactly what it's wanted for so long. Back in the Dreaming. There are two gates at the entrance to the true dreaming. 
The Lord of Dreams set them there himself a long time ago. There were three gods, or so the tale went, who wished to rule in Dream's domain, who planned to feed on Dream's and take all the power of Dream's for their own. From the skull and from the spine of the oldest, Dream created his helm. From the tusks of the middle god, he carved a gate through which the commonality of Dream's could travel, all the falsehoods and hopes and fears. And from the horns of the youngest, he carved a gate that he reserved for true Dream's. This is because he had some little regard for her, and had, perhaps, in some small measure, regretted the course of action he had found necessary. But all this was long ago, and the truth of it all has not been told on this world. We see here Morpheus standing before the Gate of Horn, and it looks awesome. This kind of crazy kaleidoscopic ephemeral butterfly wing gate with these screaming eddies of dream pouring around it. Yeah, and it's through this gate of true dreams that he speaks to Andros. Yes, a dream which Andros will remember on waking. He tells Andros that the priesthood's responsibilities are at an end. He asks that they bury Orpheus. When that is done, your task will be over. Your duties will be at an end. If you wish, you may stay at the temple, or do... do whatever you may wish. I want to point out that on this page, and for the next several pages, Dream's hands are always either cast in shadow or hidden in his coat. He now approaches another gate. This is apparently the entrance to the palace, as the three guards are here, although the gate is just a low stone door and the guardians are reliefs carved upon it. And Griffin seems not to recognize Morpheus, just for a moment. I'm sorry, my lord. It was just that, for a moment... Do not trouble yourself, Griffin. You three have served me well in the past, as you shall serve me well in the future. Have I ever told you how much I appreciate your service, that I value you all most highly? Sire? No matter. Carry on. Is he all right? Inside he finds Nuala. Yeah, and he's being nice to Nuala, which really throws her off her guard. Right, he's really weirding everybody out with niceness. Remember, this contrasts with the scene earlier in the same story where he spotted Nuala dancing and just appeared behind her and said, Stop that. Right. He points out here that Nuala is a fairy gift, and he has learned not to trust fairy gifts, as they tend to disappear when they're wanted. I cannot help what I am. No. Have your journeyings gone well, sir? They are over. That is, I think, all that can be said for them. And then he mentions the pendant around her neck. Right, a gift from his ex who is now gone. He says that he's seen it before. He apparently recognizes it as something she used to wear. That pendant around your neck. I have seen it before, have I not? Yes. Ah, well, keep it. Wear it. It is no matter. Perhaps my journeyings have indeed accomplished one thing. Sir? Do not trouble yourself, little one. Go in peace. He enters the library and shuts the door, closing out Nuala. Yeah, so there was worry before that she shouldn't wear it in front of Morpheus, but now he seems to be okay with it. Yeah, so that's pretty straightforward, telling us that he's basically gotten over the breakup. He's not upset to see any reminder of his ex, as they feared that he would be. Hmm... See, I don't know. I I get the feeling that he's still not over the breakup, but that he's just handling his emotions differently than they're used to him doing. He's not as temperamental, perhaps. I don't know if that's going to last or if that's just a side effect of the slightly shell-shocked state that he's in. In the library, he finds Lucian. He tells Lucian that he's back and he doesn't want to be disturbed for the rest of the day. He'll resume his duties tomorrow. I have neglected them long enough. 
And I have responsibilities here, after all. I have many responsibilities. He's sort of denying what destruction told him. Right. Insisting to himself that he is needed. He tells Lucian that Ishtar is in the Dreaming on her way beyond, and that he has a message for her, so he has to pass on Destruction's words that he did love her. He also says, There are some who have aided me on my journey. Faramond, the Lady Bast, a dead human named Ruby, and others. They must be suitably rewarded. And he asks that messengers be sent to the Aldermen and Attain, who had gone into hiding, to let them know that they can return to their lives now. That destructions, fail-safes are out of the way. With that, he leaves the library. And coming in after him is Murr Pumpkinhead. Hey, Loosh, where do you want this stuff? It's mostly guidebooks to countries and cities that never existed. Junk like that. I want to point out that in the stack of guidebooks to countries that don't exist, there is one labeled Kadath, and another One Night in Baghdad. Baghdad right. is a real place, of course. What's Kadath? The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is a Lovecraft story. I see. I just like Lucia's response. Ah, yes, the Cryptogeographica. <laughs> he instructs Merv to take them to a new annex, and Merv complains about having to work. They have a conversation here about Morpheus being back. No more rain, at least, it looks like. Well, not so fast. One little thing goes wrong, and he acts like the sky is falling. Like he accidentally put up one little forest where he was maybe expecting a laundry room, and all of a sudden he's acting like it's a matter of life and death. Real life. That's what guys like him never have to face up to. Real life. Morpheus enters his private chambers, which are beautifully and starkly white. Yeah, and we get a page here of him washing his hands, which are still bloody. Yes, that's right. He takes off his coat, and we can now see that his arm is still covered in blood up to the elbow. He pours water in a bowl, he washes his hand. Actually, there's one panel here where you can kind of see that both hands are bloody. Hmm, that's true. Anyway, after he washes his hands, he pokes the bloody bowl, and the image of Orpheus appears. And it replays the conversation that they had in the Sandman special. How Orpheus should have gone to Eurydice's funeral. She is dead. You are alive. So live. He repeats those words to himself. So live, he says as a tear runs down his cheek. And now he climbs the stairs, he sits down in a big chair, and the rain is pouring down behind him. And we can see that he's still very sad. He throws a hand over his face. Lovely work with posture and facial expressions here from Jill Thompson. Yeah, this is just a great piece of art. I think that I have already posted it once as the image for an earlier issue in this story arc. Oh yeah, this was my image for the... Breaking up is hard to do, Tweed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which was my hook for part one. Yeah, and you can argue that there's a little bit of a deliberate contrast there between the uh, sadness that he felt over losing his ex and the despair that he's fallen into now. Over having to kill his son. Yeah. Yeah. One is perhaps a little bit more performative. Hard to say. That brings us to an epilogue of sorts. Yeah, we get some updates on various people that we encountered throughout the story. Now, this is a woman named Mary Canby. She is the homeless woman who was sitting in the alcove with Delirium at the very beginning. We thought that was Mad Hetty. Not sure if it's not or if Mad Hetty's name is Mary Canby. Good question. She's sitting in a graveyard surrounded by bottles. She found a 20-pound note in a rubbish bin this afternoon and has spent the evening drinking her way through it. As she finishes each bottle, she throws it at a gravestone and listens to it smash. After a while, she begins to cry. 
Then we cut to Chloe Russell, the little girl that Morpheus talked to on the plane. She's thinking about a boy who divorced his mother. She has a new cat, because her mom's latest boyfriend ran over the old one with a car. He replaced it that afternoon with a pedigreed Persian kitten, fresh from the pet shop, and seemed surprised that Chloe was not delighted. She's just kind of gently dissatisfied with her lot in life. Meanwhile, Danny Capax is burning his father's old things. It doesn't matter anymore who else his father was. He isn't burning everything. Danny slid a couple of blank passports into his back pocket. You'll never know when you need to be someone else. Tom Flaherty, the cop. This is the cop who stopped Delirium on the road. He is in a mental hospital as he feels bugs crawling all over him at all times. He does not dare to open his mouth to scream. There are flies and things like flies swarming over his lips, probing and buzzing and kissing. Feeling the uh, kiss of delirium, sort of? Hmm. And here's Tiffany, the dancer, the sole survivor of the Suffragette City Strip Club. Tiffany sits in the leather chair and tells the studio audience how she found her new life, how the Palace of Sin was destroyed, kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah, interjects the show's host, and of the angel who appeared to her and gave her an Armani jacket to cover her nakedness and told her that she was saved. Everybody claps. Tiffany glows. Then we cut to Eyeball McGee. (laughs) Who, of course, they met... In the hotel fire, Eyeball McGee was the fireman. (laughs) Eyeball McGee's parents are slightly weird. No, here we are cutting inside the eye of Desire, or more accurately inside the eye of the threshold, Desire's fortress, which is shaped like a giant Desire. And there's a note here that Desire would be amused to hear itself described as an angel. Desire's thoughts are private. It holds a small red flower very tightly. Back on the island... Andros is digging the grave, leaning on his shovel to catch his breath. It says his chest hurts and he finds it hard to catch his breath. They put Orpheus's head into the grave. Andros wonders if he's in Elysium with Eurydice, or return to the darkness, or just at rest. Or he thinks perhaps his spirit will move into the cherry tree, and the cherries next season will taste of true poetry and song. And when Andros tastes them, he will feel young again. No. Andros knows he will not live to see the tree blossom again. It is going to be a beautiful day. All right, so that was Brief Lives. Man, that was good comics. Yeah, it was a pretty good story. I don't know if it quite lives up to some of the others for me. Mm -hmm. Some of the other big story arcs. Season of Mists. Okay. Doll's House. Right. But it was much less kind of plot-driven. Okay, yeah. And more just kind of tonal, you know? (laughs) Okay, yeah. Yeah, it certainly took its time. It's kind of meandering, and that's partially a reflection of the actual length of the story, and partially that it basically has a meandering tone, that a lot of it is the journey for the journey's sake and the personalities interacting with each other. Yeah, you have a lot of conversations for conversation's sake in here. Yeah, and this is, as I've mentioned, it's kind of the story that's the most driven by the personalities and characters of The Endless. Right. We should talk a little bit about the concept of brief lives, I guess. Well, yeah, it's all summed up on that couple of pages where they're in the garden with destruction before he walks off into the sky. Everything's fleeting. Everything's temporary. The stars give the illusion of permanence, but nothing is permanent, not even the universe. Yeah. For the Endless, even the lifetimes of gods are insignificant, but even the lives of the Endless are bounded. 
Right. And much is made throughout the story arc of the impacts, large and small, that the Endless have on people that they encounter, as emphasized by that last couple of pages, in which we see all of the people that they bumped into. Yeah, uh, it turns out well for almost none of them. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I think Chloe Russell is doing okay. (laughs) Yeah, Chloe Russell is sort of melancholy, but about something unrelated. Yeah, it seems that for most of them, life goes on. Right. I feel like we're maybe supposed to get the impression that Tiffany somehow has exactly what she wanted and that she's on TV telling her story. Right. Yeah, she gets to be... She gets to be famous, but not in, like, a sexualized way. Yeah. And Despair was kind of interested in what would happen to the priests after they lost Orpheus, but it doesn't seem like they're despairing. It seems like Andros finds meaning and purpose in having been Orpheus's minder, even though the job is over. Yeah, I I think maybe they would have been despairing, if not for the fact that they got that dream communication from Dream. Right, telling them that their purpose was at an end and that that was fine, essentially. Andros' last line here basically accepts mortality, realizes that he's not going to make it another year, but today is a beautiful day. Right, and yeah, and that kind of puts a period on the the whole idea of brief lives. Right. And Orpheus' life, which went on far too long, is ended, but that's not a source of sadness or despair, at least... Not for him and not for Andros. Morpheus is obviously wrecked. Yeah. And there's probably a couple of different levels that we can talk about there. I mean, there's the loss of his son, of course. But there's also the realization that he was wrong all those thousands of years ago. Or having to admit that he was wrong all those thousands of years ago. Yeah, he has changed. And that's kind of... You know, it's it's separate from the idea of mortality, but... It goes along with the idea of impermanence. He doesn't see himself as changing. Mm -hmm. But he has changed. And because he has changed, he has to go through this painful process of facing up to how wrong he was all those years ago. Yeah, and that's something that we've seen kind of over and over in this series. You could say that large parts of the series are basically Morpheus going around fixing things. Mm-hmm. fixing things that he did wrong a long time ago. Right. Season of Mists is another example, as he has to fetch Nada out of hell. Yeah, that's how it starts. But yeah, in terms of plot, I definitely don't think it satisfies in the same way that some of the really plot-heavy story arcs do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have perhaps the same fairy tale feel, the same mythical feel of yeah. telling like an it, immortal story. Especially like the kind of mythic qualities of Game of You. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's an interesting one. It's emotionally very accomplished writing. Mm-hmm. And even though we've kind of just passed the halfway point of the series, well, 12 issues ago now, but with Morpheus having spilled family blood, this begins to feel like the beginning of the end. Yeah. So, what's next? In our next Sandman episode, we will celebrate Ramadan. That's issue 50, right? That's right. But first, join us next week as we say goodbye to Jamie Delano and John Constantine Encounters, The Magus. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show, and I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertigize.blueberry.com. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. 
You can get in touch with us via email, vertiguise at gmail.com. Or on Twitter, at vertiguise, you can reach me at blankcastshawn. If you'd like to leave us a positive review on whatever podcast software you use, uh, we'd very much appreciate that, and it would help spread the word about Vertiguise. We also are in the habit of giving shout-outs for positive reviews. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. And I know that it's not easy to be calm When you found something going on But take your time, think a lot Why think of everything you've got For you will still be here tomorrow But your dreams may not (laughs) This was PK's idea to improve the Arkham games (laughs) Is that every minute 90 seconds or so batman says what his current objective is gotta find the penguin but he says it out loud and if you're sneaking up on somebody they hurt (laughs) i don't know do the arkham games need improvement it seems like they were fine and then like they fixed them i think by improvement he meant that it would make people mad (laughs) oh i see this is pure schadenfreude